Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air global network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author, Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Eliza Clark. Eliza's debut novel, Boy Parts, was released in July 2020 and has since been Blackwell's Fiction Book of the Year. In 2022, Eliza was chosen as a finalist for the Women's Prize Future the Women's Prize Futures Award for Writers Under 35, and in 2023 was selected as one of Granta's Best Young British Novelists of the Decade. Her second novel, Penance, was released in the UK in July of 2023. Welcome, Eliza. Hi. So nice to have you, and congratulations on all your um, <laughs> your success and um, your fabulous, I loved Penance. I, I love to mark oh, little you. spots that are my favorite. So um, before we dive into um, the writing and the book and all that good stuff, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Penance? Yes. Uh, so Penance is a um, an, an untrue crime book. So it's a, it's a <laughs> fiction novel written in the style of a of a nonfiction true crime book, um, and it tells the story of a teenage girl who is murdered by three other teenage girls um it's also kind of a town history and kind of a, a history of everything leading up to the 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 crime in question I was going to ask if it was based on a true crime because it is very much it reads very much like it's like you said like a true crime story which is fun because there's a whole you know, obviously there's an incredible following for, you know, true crime and there's a lot of true crime junkies. Can you tell us sort of what the seed was? Like, how did, how did the story come to you? Uh, yes, it's a sort of, I, I almost can't quite remember where it came from now because I, I started writing it sort of in late 2019 and um, I have like, I, I just feel like my, my memory of that kind of time is so blurry because it was it was so close to the pandemic. Right. Um, and Penance is such a, it's, it, it is a pandemic book. It was written entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic. So yes. I actually, I don't quite remember where the sort of first idea came from. I know that it was like, there are a couple of real life cases I was thinking about that I sort of wanted to look at and fictionalize and write a novel not about but sort of incorporating some of the elements from those real life cases um and then I remember at some point the the sort of seaside town element coming in my um mm -hmm. my my partner is well he grew up um he spent his teenage years in a in a seaside town on the east coast of the UK called Scarborough which is quite it, it's sort of like a small town it's very kind of uh faded glamour and it's quite mm -hmm run down now um and um there was just always a lot of like weird local news things that he sort of told me about that that he could remember mm -hmm. um, and I just found them so interesting and thought it would make like a really great backdrop for something like this um the element of it being a non-fiction book again I'm also not quite sure when that came into it but I I know that it was sort of brought in um just to kind of push the work formally a bit more but also uh, to differentiate it a bit more from my first book um mm -hmm. I think there's there's a lot of pressure for sort of uh second time novelists I think particularly the kind of not like 
replicate their first book again and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people sort of I think just because of the nature of the way a lot of publishing contracts work you often have like years and years and you have your entire life to write your first book and then maybe have two years to write the follow-up right Um, yeah and I I was really really conscious of making sure that I did something didn't that didn't feel like a, a rehash of my first book um so yeah that was that was that element of it as well um and yeah and and I think it just sort of built up very gradually from there it was it was writing this was quite a slow process compared to my first book which I think I had the first draft of that done in about like like nine or ten months or something Mm -hmm. whereas this was done in in bits where I was taking long breaks so it's sort of like I started it in late 2019 and then I don't think I went back to it until sort of autumn of 2020 and then had another big break from it and did some stuff in like spring of 2021 and then a lot in autumn and then a lot in like early 2022 so it was a very like broken Mm -hmm. up and um uh quite disjointed process I think for for writing it wow well you you use a lot of really interesting different sort of you know methods to tell the story right we have like diary diary entries and we have posts and we have interviews um can you sort of you know what sort of led you to sort of take that sort of um varied approach versus just sort of like a you know interview like a more sort of traditional detective story or you know yeah I think it was again part of that interest in wanting to just do some I guess to vary the format of the book and to Mm -hmm. to experiment a bit formally while also kind of leaning into my strengths so I'm good at I'm good at mimicking and I'm good at sort of first person voices so I thought it was sort of a way to almost kind of play to those um those different things that I that I think I'm good at (laughs) and um I think also just I get I get bored very easily and I think it's a good way to just sort Mm -hmm. of add in a lot of different elements so it was written quite non linear and I could kind of go and work on bits that I was interested in working on on that day um and maybe bits that I wasn't so interested in I could leave for a while right um, until they became until they become interesting too until right they become that, interesting again yeah. <laughs> exactly so one I think one of the the fun themes of the book is sort of our culture's obsession with you know true crime and you know mm-hmm. I guess you know why do you think that is and and why do you spoke like what about that was interesting to you? Because you've obviously are exploring that as a you know as part of the book. Yes, um, I think we've kind of reached. It, it's interesting because I think true crime stuff changed a lot. Uh, while I was writing Penance, it feels like we kind of went into true crime overdrive a little bit during the pandemic, um, and not that it wasn't becoming increasingly big and increasingly mainstream before that, but I feel yeah. like it. it kind of really rocketed I think it was sort of the Netflix stuff really really took it to like a different place yeah um and I I think it was it was sort of I don't know I suppose my own relationship with with true crime changed quite a lot as well while I was writing it and that I kind of went in as quite a like casual consumer of of true crime and ended the book as being quite a critical consumer of true crime Mm -hmm. um I think I yeah and I I suppose it was sort of that that element of it becoming increasingly increasingly mainstream and increasingly saturated mm-hmm. that that sort of helped that kind of shifted my opinion on it while I was writing it I think it was also 
um while I was writing the book I was reading a lot of true crime a lot of what I would consider to be sort of quite like like high quality and like very um sensitive and intelligent um true crime writing um which I was I was sort of using as like a structural reference but also it's sort of the amount of reading of that kind of material I did made it difficult for me to go back to some say I would say like sort of documentaries and podcasts which are maybe less less sensitive and less um what's the word I'm looking for less detailed and less informative uh-huh. I suppose yeah um it was kind of so more salacious of... pieces yes, that are more, more like about yeah, the exactly yeah yeah I, I completely understand yeah. I think and I think it, you know I think that's an interesting part of it it's like there is of course a natural interest and curiosity about how things happen mm. I think women you know women are the the main consumer of true crime and I always mm. think that's really interesting but maybe it's because we're primary victims right I mean we're more often mm. victims than men are um but I think it's interesting because there is like you said there's a really there's a huge number of very insensitive um mm. true crime things happening and then there are lovely ones that are much more sort of delicate and and thoughtful and uh respectful right because the, mm. some of them are just downright disrespectful I mean can't imagine being part of a you know being the victim's mother or something and and seeing what you know what people do so I'm curious because you know you um you chose a male perspective for that Mm -hmm. um main character and I that just it just curious to me can you talk to us about what about that that choice and yes um it was in part kind of I suppose like a bit a bit of a cheeky choice um because (laughs) my my first novel has a very unlikable female narrator and it's very first person point of view and it's kind of effectively written as a monologue and I was very conscious um so that that first book Boy Parts was released in summer of 2020 so it, it like when I was still very early on in writing Penance I wasn't quite sure what I was doing with that narrator yet and I think it was sort of the the way that people immediately feel the need to draw a line between the author and and the protagonist when when there is particularly using like a voice like that and a lot of the content in boy parts is quite transgressive um and sort of deals with a lot of themes around sexual violence so I found Mm -hmm. it like people trying to draw that line between me and the protagonist very intrusive and very um insensitive and very silly in a lot of ways as well I think it's not a very I think it's a, a not a very good instinct to approach books with Mm-mm. um Mm-mm. when you're reading um and I I think I was just sort of almost wanting to put quite a big gap between me and the protagonist this time um and sort of almost to just sort of deliberately drive that wedge because it hasn't happened at all this time which obviously it wouldn't but um I think it was also just to to give the narrator a bit more of like a traditional media background um Mm -hmm. in the UK the I I think this is maybe the case but to a lesser extent in the US just because it's so much bigger and there's not as much domination from from legacy media but our legacy media in the UK is very much run by like a group of people who have gone to the same schools and it's like it's people who've gone to private school and then have gone to Oxford and Cambridge so we end up with this very very narrow demographic of, of a certain type of person mm-hmm. who effectively gets to tell stories in, in this country and I was quite interested in in playing with that type of person this kind of 
I guess, middle class legacy media guy who, um, right, yeah, who's like, kind of almost white, been handed a newspaper right. column. Right, white, <laughs> white male, white male privilege. Yeah, it is interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about that, the boy parts, because I, I got a chance to read some of that. I didn't have time to finish it, but I, again, like you said, it's a very different style book, and there is something. I think I wonder. I don't feel like media does it so much with men when a man mm. writes a male character who's mm. unlikable or even you know violent and ugly and angry they don't necessarily attribute those characters the characteristics to the author but for some reason unlikable women characters mm. are always like well then the, the the author must be this this must be about the author and mm. um you know it's a it's a little insulting as you said mm. um but I can, you know, it does happen. And I, I think it's curious. I mean, you know, do you, do you feel like that's right? Do, do we do that to men or just more to women? And, and what, you know, why do we suppose we do that? Yeah, I think it's very gendered. I, um, I almost wonder if it's a bit of a, like, I think, I think it's quite patronizing. I, th I wonder if it's, it's almost people thinking that like, oh, you couldn't have possibly written this if you were, <laughs> like you couldn't have possibly made this up you must be drawing on your own experiences um this sort of instinct to to I guess to downplay the amount of work that women particularly I think like young women novelists do to sort of basically say that there's no way you could have come up with this on on purpose you must have just pulled it all from your own life I think in some ways that I suppose that would be a very negative and cynical way to look at it I think more positively I do think people who identify with the work want to want to identify with you as well mm -hmm. and I think some of it can come from from a more positive place from there but I also think I think a lot of it does come from that more like patronizing yeah place. so do you feel like I mean you're a very young author and you know and have had really great success so which is amazing but do you feel like that there's also people sort of um reacting to your age and sort of you know like do people sort of minimize you you and your successes because they're like well she's so young it's sort of impossible to imagine she's doing this on her own or... <laughs> yeah it's funny we have like I think um there's sort of there's been like an increasing amount of criticism about the focus on young authors um mm -hmm. I think I don't know if this is as much a case in the U.S. but it's certainly in the U.K. there's been a sort of an increasing backlash to highlighting and sort of prizes and and list culture and stuff that that seems to be catering toward the under 35s and, and under 40s and sort of highlighting the idea that it's kind of like quite this quite sort of cynical marketing tactic to kind of pick up these people who are I, I, I guess kind of younger and a bit sexier and a bit more sellable or something mm -hmm. um so it's it's funny I haven't found well I feel like I've had kind of like a kind of general a, a bit of a sort of general dismissiveness that I think a lot of like young debut woman mm -hmm. authors have um I wonder if it will be interesting to see how I feel about this as I get older because I, I just feel like I don't have a lot of perspective on it now mm -hmm. um so it'll be interesting to see if when I'm like in my 50s 60s that I'll be like oh actually yeah the way people used to talk about my work 30 years ago was was actually quite strange right and somewhat dismissive right yeah I mean um, it is it is interesting because I do think it's and I think the backlash is interesting because I mm -hmm. I mean obviously I think that's envy right I mean my my perspective would be that those people who are responding to the fact that 
young mm. successful authors are getting attention is a is a is just a form of of envy, right? I mean, I think it we why wouldn't we so celebrate people who are doing amazing things um, as young people because we don't have the mm. world. I mean, you you're writing about things that are you know about people who have had a lot more life experience than you do. There's a lot of mothers and parents of these girls, the, the you know, the victim and the um, the perpetrators um, that is beyond sort of your own life experience, which is admirable. And I think we should, we should celebrate it. So, but I think it's interesting. It is interesting that that's yeah. yet another hurdle. I think that's maybe, I think that's maybe sort of an element of that. I think, I think in some ways people are sort of responding to, the kind of structural things that keeps people out of the arts at a young age mm-hmm. um and they're sort of I, I think of it as almost a bit of a sort of like somebody honking their horn at a car that's cut them up and that they're not really like honking the horn at the person inside the car they're honking at the car mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think and, it, and it's not particularly pleasant if you're inside the car mm-hmm. but, but um yeah I feel like it's it's maybe a bit of Sometimes you kind of catch uh, catch strays, as as the kids would yes. say. From um, you're you're catching strays from people trying to make a sort of general, sort of structural criticism of the way the the industry works, particularly in in the UK. Um, and maybe it can just it may, perhaps if you're the person that is sort of <laughs> on on the list that is being complained about, it can feel a bit salty. Right, bit right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something to that too. Like you know, it does seem like there can be this, this the assumption that it's a privileged situation to have been, been able to write a book at a young age. But obviously you and I both know that writing a book is no like easy feat. So yeah. it's not so much privilege as it is like, you know, clawing your way up a um, very scrabbly mountain. So tell yeah. us about your, you know, since this is your second sophomore book, and like you said, there is a lot of pressure on the sophomore book and you've I think delivered beautifully so hopefully you're feeling you. a little um the pressure of that part of it at least is over <laughs> tell us about sort of you know as a young person sort of how did you end up you know being deciding that you were going to write a book sort of at such a young age and and how it was your if you don't mind talking about your, your your sort of experience and where you submitted and obviously you didn't just write boy parts and and send it into a publisher and it came out six months later we know that's not how this works so tell us yeah. about your journey um I've been I've been writing as a hobby um pretty pretty much since I was like a kid so I used to I used to write fan fiction when I was like I started doing that when I was 13 or 14 um and I just used to do it all the time it was like I I actually probably ended up with like worse grades at school than I would have had because I was I was writing so much fan fiction Um, which was for me I think it was a lot about like I just really really enjoyed writing and I liked Mm. being able to I like people being able to read it and I think um it provided like a really good sort of framework for me because I I think when you're when you're writing original work it's like some of the most difficult parts of doing the writing in that case is coming up with the original stuff whereas when you're just writing fanfic you don't really need to worry as much about like coming up with characters and worlds you can just focus on like pacing and yeah. line level writing in in a way that's like really really useful it's it's something that like I've done a little bit of um teaching for for new and young writers and I always recommend that they have a stab at writing some fan fiction just because I found it so useful um when I was a teenager and then I sort of started writing more original stuff more seriously in my in my early 20s so when I was kind of at university sort of 19 20 21 
I didn't really start I was doing I was more in the kind of speculative and horror fiction space mm-hmm. um which is a, a lot more of what my my short fiction takes the form of so I was sort of I was doing bits and bobs of submitting to kind of like standard the sort of big sci-fi magazines and horror magazines like yeah Nightmare and Clark's World and bits and bobs like that um and then I I was sort of around when I was doing that. There's a, there's an organisation in the northeast of of the of the UK called um, New Writing North, which it, which is where I'm from. Um, and it was while I was living back there in a in a city called Newcastle, which is uh, it's a great city, but it's very cut off from the arts, which is very very London centric. So mm-hmm. New Writing North was like a a really really essential um organisation for me to get involved with um it was I'd actually applied for a job there which I which I didn't get but they invited me to be a participant on one of their grant schemes so because of that I got one-to-one mentoring so I was working Mm. on a lot more original short stories with that mentoring scheme and then started writing boy parts there and then it was sort of around when I started writing boy parts I got a job at a literary magazine called Mislexia which is like Mm -hmm. a, a teeny tiny sort of six seven person staff magazine um which is a, a a writing magazine for women um based in Newcastle and um that was really useful and that it gave me like a really good um professional like insight into the professional side of publishing so like mm-hmm. how to write a cover letter for an agent wh- what a literary agent is and um, right where they are and who they are right and like what they that. do um, exactly yeah <laughs> Well, um, it's and then yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, carry on. <laughs> and then you so so you were writing boy parts during that. No, please tell continue. Yeah, um, and I once I'd finished that, I think that was sort of late two thousand eighteen. I spent most of early twenty nineteen just kind of bouncing back and forth between editing boy parts and then submitting it to agents. So it was sort mm-hmm. of like I was going to I was going back and forth between working four or five days a week and it would be like on Fridays or Saturdays I would go and sit in a cafe for like six hours and I would either just write and then in early 2019 I would write cover letters to mm-hmm. agents and yeah. um yeah. edit my manuscript yeah um, so I think I sent that to like I think I sent it to 12 agents maybe and didn't get yeah. any response um and then I was uh when I was working at Miss Lexia I used to run the online forum and I used to run like online events on the, it was a yeah. subscribers only forum. I used to run online events for it. And we had like a pitching event with um indie presses. Yeah. And I decided I was going to be very professional and not pitch my own book. And then I was unprofessional and pitched my own book and um, <laughs> they asked for it. And then, yeah, I think within like four weeks, I'd signed a, a, a book deal for, for boy parts. That's... Um, yeah. That's awesome. Well, I think it's interesting. So fan fiction, let's talk about that a little bit because it's not something that's come up on the podcast before. And I think oh, it really? is a younger, I mean, you know, it's a younger generation's thing. My my daughter's mm-hmm. 23 and she talks about it a lot. Um, but I love the idea that because the world is already created, right? You you know, mm-hmm. that it that it makes some parts of this of the process easier. Can you elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit on sort of what type of fan fiction you did and, and maybe explain a little bit to those people who might not know exactly what fan fiction is what it is yeah it's basically you write stories for like pre-existing media properties so there was a lot of there's like a lot of harry potter fan fiction there's a lot of like lord of the rings fan fiction and that kind of stuff um i used to bounce around a lot between a lot of different fandoms just because i was i was more interested in the writing i think than i actually was in the the sort of fan 
be, being like in the fandom stuff if that makes sense um, mm-hmm. but yeah it normally just kind of like it's sort of almost like filling in the gaps and exploring things that you wanted to see more of that mm-hmm. the 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 media property that you liked wasn't necessarily delivering on so like more finding out more about like or writing more about particular characters that you really like or more about like relationships that you want to see on screen and um just kind of bits and bobs like that (laughs) and do you and I mean I know there's a lot of it out there how do you you know did you disseminate it did people you know did they download it and read it how do people get access to it um that's like a couple of different websites I think the main one that is used at the minute is called archive of our own which I think is the one that I will have mostly used under like a few different account names and stuff which is it's basically just you you upload a story there. It works the kind of the same way that like Wattpad or something for mm-hmm. original fiction, which you might be more mm-hmm. familiar with. Um, it's very very similar setup to that. You kind of upload it and tag it with the fandoms and characters that are involved, and then people click it and read it. <laughs> That's well, it's I mean it's fascinating. I think that it makes a lot of sense because <laughs> starting a book from with nothing, right? No character, mm-hmm. no world, nothing, and then the idea of writing shorter fiction, which it sounds like you did as well um mm-hmm. always sort of so you've been do, I mean for such a young person you've got a lot of experience right in writing you've been doing it a long time yeah I, I guess in some ways like yeah I think if you if if you can count fan fiction which I guess you sort of can of um, course of course <laughs> every word um, counts but yeah I've been writing I've been writing a lot since I was like I don't know I feel like it's almost given me a bit of a head start because I felt like I I haven't had to do my sort of uh, basically I almost I don't have like a desk drawer novel because I felt like sort of quite adept in carrying out like a long form story already by the time I was kind of getting to this the state of working in my own original like characters and themes and stuff yeah yeah and I think the idea of doing short fiction which it sounds like you mm-hmm. did so you went from fan fiction to to original short fiction which is all those are all really important building blocks that I think mm-hmm. a lot of people who want to write a novel just think oh I'm just gonna start a book which is as we Mm. know a much bigger undertaking than one can imagine when one starts (laughs) it's it's so so intimidating I think it's all about kind of breaking it down into easier more approachable chunks I think for for fiction writing because yeah the idea of just sitting down and writing a novel is like I, I, I don't know if that's possible if you can do that without like at least trying your hand at doing like a bunch of short fiction or like longer right. form short fiction well <laughs> right. or if you do it makes it it's a you know it's not you're not going to get it probably right the first time that's for sure mm. and it is a huge investment in time especially when you're a young person having to support yourself right I and mean, there's a lot of mm. um there's a lot of tricks to it so um coming back to um penance because there's so many fun mm. things um to explore about this one of the things that I thought was interesting is sort of the theme of the you know bullies being bullied and like you know, oftentimes, like, you know, we experience both, of course, we're, you know, we, we, we have experiences with being the bully. Um, and, and everybody has it in one way or another, right. But the book mm. um, sort of explores what, you know, when we take things too far, and how that line is very, it's a very narrow line between, mm. you know, just sort of what we consider like a an, an, a, an inappropriate comment made off the cuff, and, and really when we've done real damage. So, you know, I'm I'm curious to hear sort of your thoughts on on exploring that theme and and the idea of um, how we get to that place where we've you know taken something too far. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in um in in like power 
and and violence in my work I think it's sort of one of my main themes <laughs> I guess um, mm-hmm. um yeah I've, I've always just been interested in that sort of I guess that kind of that sort of acting out of power dynamics that you've been subject to on other people and like seeing and, and I guess experiencing for myself like people who are picked on by other people then taking the opportunity to pick on people who are who they can basically sure. I, I've always found that that very interesting the way that people seem to be even like teenagers I think particularly seem to be, be very attuned to these sort of it's sort of weird social hierarchies that seem to crop out crop up out of nowhere in this very yeah. like I don't know it's almost like quite ape-like way of, of sorting and looking at people um I think that's fascinating that 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 people do that basically right um, yeah and it's and it's just so it's it's quite strange and it feels quite like in some ways quite uncivilized oh um, yes I, sort of lord of yeah. the flies ish right I yeah. mean it really is yeah it totally is yeah and it, it feels like I don't know like high school is like this this sort of awful like containment zone for people who are like both the most fragile and the most volatile they'll ever be and I know. we just put them all in a big building for, for yeah. six years and expect it to work out fine <laughs> um well and, yeah yeah <laughs> and it's not doesn't go that well over here as you know because mm. of course the the presence of a lot of weapons um do you mm. feel like I mean so teenagers and maybe it's just that we're we're spending more time thinking about teenagers or there's a change in focus or social media makes us more aware of what everybody's doing mm. but it seems like teenagers are maybe more there's more violence around that age group than there has been or is it something that we're just paying more attention to what do you what do you think yeah I feel like I wonder if it is maybe something that we're paying more attention to and I also wonder if it's in part because we consider we 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 like we consider them to be children in our current cultural setup whereas a hundred years ago they were adults so we didn't really think about it like that like I think a lot about um when you sort of read about like medieval history and then realize that like a bunch of the people sort of starting wars were like 20 and you kind of think like oh of course a bunch of 20 year olds are starting wars you're an idiot at that age why would you start a war right 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 (laughs) Your, and, your your brain's not fully formed till you're 25 and by that yeah. time 100 years ago a lot of people were already dead right I mean it's, yeah, a, it's exactly. a very different it was a short life it is I mean it is it's concerning and then the flip side of that is sort of the and, and you do the another this is another sort of beautiful theme in the book which I really appreciated was the idea of how much how culpable are the parents right mm-hmm. like there's this idea that if your child does something really really awful of course the parent is always sort of you know it's like you must have done something really wrong and mm. you know are they responsible you know what to what extent what do you think mm. yeah I think I, I I I always tend to err on like that, that it's just so complex and that in some ways it's kind of like your your upbringing is always going to account for how you behave and and what happens in a certain situation but there's also things that that parents just can't possibly account for and and things that you can't be in control of I mean I'm a I'm a big I'm a big advocate for um limiting teenagers internet access personally (laughs) um or at least monitoring it very heavily I think like a lot of people sort of around my age being kind of like I guess like younger millennials where you had 
it basically you had this thing in your house that, that your parents don't really understand but you you can learn about really quickly mm-hmm. um, because you're like seven and your brain just works a lot faster with this kind of stuff and um yeah that there's this sort of there's this real like wild westy element to the internet and I think people can really underestimate how like how affecting the the internet can be in terms of I mean, we've seen a lot in the last decade. It's it's power for for radicalization on um and on, on a political level. I think particularly with with young men. Um, it's obviously been like a huge issue in the states as well as I mean worldwide. But I think we see we tend to see so much of it um from the states that that that's kind of a it's something that I'm very interested in. I guess just because I feel like um I feel like I I grew up very much alongside this sort of thing and mm-hmm. being able to see people go down people that you know that are like online acquaintances go down like really strange rabbit holes has has been quite an odd thing um, and to witness and yeah I think um yeah it's weird it's like I'm always very conscious about being like internet bad (laughs) um when I'm I'm talking about it right I think it's it's more complicated than that but I do think that you know we've got this like unwieldy tool that it's interesting and that like a lot of I don't know I guess basically a lot of older people just don't have the same like innate understanding or had like why would why would you think that there were people radicalizing your children on the internet <laughs> um and, yes right yeah right. yeah that I mean, it's sort of interesting to have to basically to have the people who know the most um and who are your, your kind of society's caretakers not knowing about this thing where it's just a bunch of children going insane on <laughs> I know and it, I mean you do hear like you know the the people like you know, the, the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs and the Jeff Bezos are like, we would never let our children anywhere near the internet. And you're like, <laughs> but wait a minute, you guys, you created the internet. Why are you saying that? That's so terrifying to those of us who, mm. you know, who let our children go a little bit wild on the internet. Um, And you mentioned this in the beginning is totally changing direction, but I wanted to let you, you know, I wanted to explore a little bit that the town, Crow on Sea, is really its own character in the book, which is really... um you know, fascinating. And, and like you said, it's sort of loosely, loosely based on the, on the town where it sounds like your um, partner grew up, but you know, what, what makes that setting to you? I mean, it, it adds so much power to the story. So in your perspective, sort of what was, you know, why set a book like, why set this book in a place like that? Yeah, I think that seaside towns in the UK are so interesting um and I, I talk about it a little bit in the book it's sort of the because Pennant's kind of uses like a real world setting it does fold in some real world mm-hmm. facts in the um yeah in the UK the seaside towns basically used to be a quite a like glamorous and like expensive tourist destination so mm-hmm. it would be like the aristocracy would come out of London to visit these seaside towns um yeah and and obviously with the the advent of um cheap holidays i mean it, it's also as well that um the the standard of living in the uk is actually it was a lot lower for a lot longer than it was in the states so there were mm-hmm. people like like it's stuff like my parents both remember getting a telephone for the first time and they're like not that old um yeah and yeah stuff like that um so like foreign holidays didn't really become a thing until the sort of 70s 80s here mm-hmm. um so it was basically these these towns that had this very like rich domestic tourist industry that was visited by like all different types of people it was suddenly kind of gone um mm-hmm. and it, which means that 
the a lot of these towns have they're they're like entirely reliant on tourists that just aren't there Mm-hmm. um it's been interesting after the after the pandemic a lot of these towns are seeing like a bit of a resurgence but yeah they've got this this really interesting and very specific aesthetic that I would recommend sort of I would recommend looking at like pictures of UK seaside towns yeah this, this sort of mix of these like beautiful grand old buildings and like shops that just sell we've got this this stuff called rock which is like it's like a it's like a kind of candy where it's just like just like a stick of like sugar and it's sure. like a thing that you would get and it's like they come in different colors but like for some reason in in Scarborough we went into like a sweet shop that was mostly just doing it just, they just sell rock um and you would go in and there would like be loads that were like shaped like penises and ah. and boobs and mm-hmm. it's like this kind of weird juxtaposition mm-hmm. of like the t- the absolute tackiest stuff about british culture this like weird like carry on just trash stuff next to this like beautiful 300 year old hotel right 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 it is I I know what you mean the sort of those depressed areas and what they sort of what they cling to in terms of Mm. you know trying to make ends meet and Mm. and then you have the incredible you know diversity between the economically you know really well off and the people who are who work in those towns Mm. and live in them and and struggle so mm. it's a, I, I love the influence of that town because it does have this sort of depressive, like everybody's a little bit underwater. And so there, it adds to the sort of s- scrambling effect of the kids, mm. because of course their parents are in that same situation and they're, and, and the characters in the book, some of them are quite wealthy and some of them, you know, uh, less mm. so. So um, I thought that was really, and you mentioned it at the beginning, but I wanted to circle back because it is really, it mm. is a really, and the name of it even, um is it really you know it's just, it's I'm sure there's not a town I mean is there a town called Crow on Sea it's a very interesting name there isn't but sort of roughly like geographically where it would be there's um mm-hmm. a a town called well it's not really a proper town it was basically the land was bought by somebody who wanted to make it a resort town but um it didn't the, it just didn't go to plan so there's like mm-hmm. four houses there it's called Ravenscar uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, there's like loads of little bits um loads of places with with mad sort of names like that in the UK which I've always just found really fascinating <laughs> yeah um, I love that I and the crow is such a you know it's a very distinctive um mm. you know creature and like you said sort of the carry on and the you know the the eating whatever's left over kind of it's got a it's a really it's sort of a nice um echoes the, the the themes of the book so I appreciated that as well um so can you tell us I know everybody I always hate when to get the question you just finished this book you've just launched it everyone's so excited and, and then the next question is what are you working on so I wanted to ask <laughs> are you able to tell us a little bit about um your next project yeah um I'm doing uh, I'm doing a bunch of different stuff actually I've, I've got a couple of film and tv projects in development which um as as always, I'll kind of NDA up to the eyeballs, so I can't really talk about them, but they, I am doing them. Um, That's very exciting. I have a short story collection coming out in the UK at the end of next year. Um, it should be out in the in the US, sort of maybe kind of around the same time, but we're yes. still kind of crossing the I's and no, d- crossing the T's and dotting the I's on that. Yes, um, at the yes. Minute. Um, which will sort of will be more of the kind of like speculative kind of horror and science fiction stuff that I mentioned earlier, which I always think it's funny because a lot of those stories are like five or six years old. And when 
boy parts came out I almost like considered myself like a sci-fi writer so it was quite weird like being in this very contemporary fiction literary space when that's sort of what my background is so it'll be fun to get some stuff like that out and um yeah yeah (laughs) so you're busy you're keeping busy well I I love it well we will look for you for sure um when it comes to the um you know the tv and film stuff because as you know we're not doing we're not making very much of that over here right now i'm hoping that'll (laughs) change soon but um well this was really exciting so eliza tell um people where to find you you know i'm social media your website um so they can check it all out yes i am at fancy eliza on both twitter and instagram Um, Mm -hmm. i'm a lot more active on instagram though and Oh, I think that's it. I do. I do have a website, but it's mostly just it's just almost there for just informational purposes. <laughs> um, OK, um, so the fancy Eliza um, at Instagram sounds like the best yeah, place and we can. And the there I'm place, sure yeah. your profile links to all the stuff we need to know about. Yes, you, so. yes absolutely. Yeah. Well, I look forward to finishing boy parts because I got you know distracted, but I really, really <laughs> enjoy this. And um, oh, congratulations you so on your success. You. And um we'll look forward to seeing you with um, your next release. Yes. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. Thanks. I that really was so fun. It. Oh yeah. Thanks. And thank you to the publicists who pointed this out. Cause I had not heard of you. So I love mm-hmm. discovering new authors and Eliza was new for me. And I, um, you can check her out um, at fancy Eliza, which I love. And for everybody <laughs> joining us today, thank you for joining killer women with Eliza Clark. I'm Danielle Gerard, and we will see you next time. Bye.